0: Thank you, Nicole. Yeah, I thought today, for the first time in, uh, in all of the years, I was going to be doing some adventure preaching, uh, because I was supposed to give blood at 9.30, uh, you know, an hour before I was supposed to speak. So as Nicole mentioned, I did eat a big breakfast. My wife, Lynn, was on me about that early this week. She's like, are you sure? That's a good idea that you give blood, like right before you speak? So you should eat a big breakfast. So I had eggs. I had I made biscuits. I had bacon, I had a glass of water, I had some coffee. And then, I, and then uh, right after I'd eaten all of that, I got the message that the blood drive was canceled. And, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's God affirming that that was not a great idea for me to speak an hour after giving blood. I don't know. Maybe also now speaking after eating a huge breakfast, which is not something that I normally do, will be its own form of adventure preaching. So we will uh, we'll, we'll have to find out. It's great to see all of you this morning. Thank you so much for being here. Today we're continuing our four-week teaching series entitled Passages, where we are looking together at passages from Scripture that have shaped and continue to shape my formation journey through the passage of time. And each one of these texts really highlights something that I think is foundational to God's ongoing process of shaping our hearts after His own. So far in our series, we've talked about the importance of showing up from the story about Eutychus in Acts chapter 20, and we've talked about the importance of being present from the story of Jesus' encounter with the bleeding woman in Mark chapter 5. And today, we're going to consider another passage together, this time from the Gospel of Luke. And it's a text that's very well known and beloved, so much so that there's actually been a children's song written about it. And that is the story of a diminutive tax collector named Zacchaeus, which is a story that reveals for us that God's process of shaping our hearts after his own requires that we be curious. God's process of shaping our hearts after his requires that we be curious. If you'd like to join me in the scriptures today, you're welcome to turn or tap your way to Luke chapter 19 which is our text for this morning. As always, the words will be projected on the screens, both here in the auditorium and in the courtyard, if you would like to follow along there as well. Luke chapter 19. And as we pick up the action at the beginning of the chapter here, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And at the end of the previous chapter, at the end of Luke 18, as Jesus was outside of the city of Jericho, there was a blind man, relentlessly yelling for Jesus, the son of David, to have mercy on him. Now everyone around Jesus was annoyed by the man's yelling and was trying to get him to stop. But Jesus asked for the man to be brought over to him. And Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And the man said, Lord, I want to see. And because of the man's faith, Jesus made that happen. And he went away seeing. And this morning, as we, as we come to a passage of Scripture that is really, really familiar, my prayer is that we would come with that very same posture as the blind man outside of Jericho. Lord, I want to see. And so would you pray with me as we begin this morning? Father, we are grateful today for the treasure of the gift of Scripture for the fact that the scriptures are living and active and that you continue to speak to us and reveal yourself to us through them, through your Holy Spirit. Father, as we enter into your word this morning, we want to see. We ask that you would be showing us more of yourself and more of who you would have us be as we look at your word together in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke chapter 19, verse one, begins like this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And so Jesus was now passing through the city of Jericho, and there was a man there named Zacchaeus. And Luke only uses nine words here in verse 2 to describe Zacchaeus, but those nine words that he uses speak volumes. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now, tax collectors were generally despised in ancient Palestine because of the reputation that they had for being extortionists. And their reputation was even worse among the Jews, both because of the contact the tax collectors had with Gentiles, and even more so because of their corroboration with the Roman government that was oppressing the Jewish people. And so while tax collecting may have been a very lucrative profession financially, it was anything but a lucrative profession, socially speaking. And so Jesus was making his way through Jericho, and Zacchaeus, Luke says, wanted to see who he was. Zacchaeus was curious. So curious, in fact, that that because he was short and couldn't see over the crowd, he climbed up into a sycamore fig tree to try to catch a glimpse of Jesus as he made his way past. And something that I think is really interesting to note here is the way that the staging of this story mirrors the social dynamic. It's interesting the way that the staging of this story mirrors the social dynamic. We've got this big crowd gathering around Jesus, sort of this event for the community of Jericho at large, right? Elvis is in the building, so to speak. They're all experiencing this together. And then there's Zacchaeus perched up high in a tree. He's outside of the crowd, distanced from the community, physically on the margins, looking down voyeuristically at what's happening. And so Zacchaeus's physical position here mirrors the reality of his social situation in a really interesting way. And so Zacchaeus is perched in this tree and Luke chapter 19, verse 5 says this. It says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now, there's a sense in which I think the familiarity of this story, and in some respects, the terseness of Luke's narrative, just the, the, sh- the very short script that he tells this story to us, can sort of normalize just how extraordinary all of this is. Right? I mean, here's Jesus, again, navigating his way through the streets of Jericho. There are all kinds of people around, all kinds of noise, all kinds of chaos. And yet, Just like we saw last week in the story of the bleeding woman, Jesus has this incredible capacity to be present to the people who are around him. He has this incredible capacity to be present to the people who are around him. In the midst of everything that's going on, and despite the fact that Zacchaeus is just so far afield, right? He's up in a tree. Jesus looks up and sees him. He sees Zacchaeus and tells him to come down from the tree because he must stay at his house today. And while the idea of of going to Zacchaeus' house may not seem like a big deal, according to our present-day cultural context, it was a really big deal, according to the hospitality customs of the ancient Near East. I mean, for someone like Zacchaeus to come down from a tree and be invited for Jesus to go to his house was huge. And that's because in the ancient world entering someone's home communicated acceptance. Entering someone's home communicated kinship. It communicated restoration and reconciliation. And so what Jesus is doing here by going to Zacchaeus's home is highly symbolic. There's so much more than what it seems. It's loaded with meaning. And we see that underscored, actually, by the crowd's response to it in verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. And here, we see the people of Jericho doing a thing that we so, so commonly do. We judge. Everyone and everything. The people here in Luke 19 are, are judging Jesus for going to be present in the home of Zacchaeus, and they're judging Zacchaeus as a sinner. Right? And so what's happening here in verse 7 is yet another example of this incredible capacity that we have as human beings to judge. And this is something, by the way, uh, that I have become very acutely aware of in my own life. And it's one of a number of really impactful learnings from the personal work that I've been doing over the past few years. How much I judge others. How much I judge circumstances. And how much I judge even myself. And you know, it's not an easy thing to look at. Because once you start becoming aware of all the ways that you're judging you begin to become attuned to just how pervasive it is. But everything starts with awareness, right? You know, last week we talked about Jesus practicing the things that he taught. And we see him doing that again here. That Jesus doesn't judge Zacchaeus. Instead, he looks up, sees this guy perched up in a tree, And is curious. Who is that? I imagine Jesus thinking. Why is he up in that tree? Why is this person going to such great lengths to see me? Now, just like the rest of the crowd, Jesus could have thought a lot of other things about Zacchaeus, but instead he was curious. And he demonstrated that curiosity by calling Zacchaeus down. And look at how Zacchaeus responds. He says in Luke chapter 19, verse eight, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, I had always understood Zacchaeus' words here as a pledge that came in response to Jesus calling him down and going to his house. And I'd always understood these words as a a commitment from Zacchaeus to change from his ways of greed as a result of this encounter that he had with Jesus. Until something that I heard in a Scripture Reflection podcast a few years ago inspired me to do some digging around. So, you know, as we've noted already, Zacchaeus' profession as a chief tax collector really painted him with a certain brush. Right? Based on his profession, he was labeled and categorized as a money-grubbing Roman corroborator. That's what tax collectors were. But here's where it gets interesting. After the people judge Zacchaeus as a sinner... In the earshot of Jesus, after Jesus says he's going to go to his house that day, the people start muttering that he's going to the home of a sinner. Sinner. After that, and after Zacchaeus stands up in verse 8 and says, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of all of my possessions to the poor. The verb that's used there, here and now I give half of all my possessions to the poor, that verb is in the present active tense. And so this is not Zacchaeus pledging changed behavior in the future. Zacchaeus is not saying here, look, Lord, here and now, I am going to give, future tense, half of all of my possessions to the poor. No, instead, it's here and now, I am giving half of all of my possessions to the poor. And so this was something that Zacchaeus was already doing. He was already giving half of all of his possessions to the poor. And so here's this person who everyone made all kinds of assumptions about and who judged him according to all of those assumptions in such a significant way that it literally drove him up into a tree. And yet, there is so much more. And all of that is not only an invitation for us to become aware of all of the ways that that we judge and all of the pride and the arrogance and the smugness that drives all of that judgment. But it also reveals how, when we judge, we miss so many good things. When we judge, we miss so many good things. Because there is a dismissiveness, a fundamental dismissiveness, that is just a part of the fabric of judgment. And that dismissiveness closes us off and really limits what we experience. You know, back in the summer of 2021, after my longtime colleague Dean Smith stepped away from ministry at Highway, it prompted me, uh, as I have mentioned, to start thinking about my own transition. And while I knew that I wanted to be intentional about that, I also knew that I had no idea how to transition. And so I started looking around for an executive coach to help guide me through the journey, whatever that journey might look like. And one of our shepherds at the time connected me with someone who their company had used, who had a network of executive coaches. And so she and I had a Zoom call so that she could hear about what I was looking for and hoping for in the process. And then she linked me up with someone who she thought would be a good fit. And so I connected with this prospective coach back in the summer of 2021. And he led me through a session so that we could see whether or not his style and his approach and my response to it felt like a fit. Session went well, at least it did from my perspective. And at the very end of the session, he said some words to me that I will never forget. He said, I can see that you're a process guy and I think I can help you. And we got off that call and I'm not sure I can even articulate how much it bothered me that he called me a process guy. <laughs> I mean, here's this guy. He doesn't know me. Right? We had spent all of 45 minutes together on Zoom, of all things, and he's already labeled me a process guy, right? whatever that means. Look at me, judging. Right? Right? Look at me judging. Now, this is not something that I'm proud of. But had this been literally any other time in my life, that would have been pretty much the end of my relationship with that person. I would have totally dismissed him. Because in my mind, he labeled me and categorized me. But thankfully, by this point, some of the experiences that I had had with the Ignatian spiritual practices prompted me to pay attention to this reaction that I was having. prompted me to be curious and to consider, why was it bothering me so much that this person called me a process guy? I wonder if that's true. I wonder what that even means. <laughs> like, is it even bad? Like, I think it is. <laughs> I wonder if there's maybe something that I could learn here. And so after some reflection, after I sat with that for a while, I decided to go ahead and hire that person to be my executive coach precisely because of that reaction that I had. And I'm so glad that I did. Because I would have missed this incredible transformational experience that was so, so different than I ever would have imagined. 30 years ago, as I was just starting out in full-time ministry as a 23-year-old, I encountered a story that has become embedded into my consciousness. Uh, The story was an unexpected gift at that particular time, and it's continued to be a gift through the years. Some of you have undoubtedly heard it before because I've shared it a number of times over the years, and I'm going to share it one last time. It's a story that I heard as I was reading a book with a small group of ministry interns back in 1993. The book was by Max Lucado, entitled In the Eye of the Storm. And it's a Portuguese fable about a poor rural farmer. This farmer had one horse. And this horse was his most valuable possession. It was so valuable, in fact, that his neighbors used to come around and encourage him to sell the horse just for the sake of his own livelihood because he literally had almost nothing else. But the farmer refused because to him, this horse was like a family member. There was no way he would ever consider selling this horse. Well, one morning, the farmer woke up and he went outside and he discovered that his horse had been stolen. And the neighbors came around, saw that the horse was gone, talked to the farmer about what had happened, and they said, We told you, you should have sold the horse. Because then at least you'd have some resources from it. Now the horse is gone and you have nothing. Surely this is a curse from God. And the farmer replied to his neighbors Don't be quick to judge. All we know is that the horse is gone. Say only that. Only God knows what is a blessing and a curse. Fifteen days later, the farmer woke up again in the morning. Went outside and discovered that his horse had returned home. His horse hadn't returned home by itself. There were 12 other horses with it. So now he had 13 horses. The neighbors came by and saw all of these horses on his property. They said, Your horse is back, and it's back with more horses. Surely this must be a blessing from God. The farmer replied again, Don't be quick to judge. All we know is that there are 13 horses. Only God knows what is a blessing and what is a curse. Well, this farmer had one son. And the son, went out one day to break one of these new horses who had arrived, was bucked off and broke both of his legs. Neighbors came around, saw the son ailing. Said, wow, these 13 horses, this is terrible. They caused your son's legs to both be broken. Surely this must be a curse from God farmer replied, don't be quick to judge. Only God knows what is a blessing and what is a curse. A short time later, the nation that the farmer and neighbors lived in went off to war with a more powerful neighboring country. And all of the sons in the community were called out to war and all of them were killed except for the man's son who stayed home because he had two broken legs. The neighbors came around. Mourning the losses in their community. So, you still have your son. Surely this must be a blessing from God. The farmer once again said, It is not for us to judge what is a blessing and a curse. Only God knows. No one else is wise enough to know. Now, the neighbors in that story show us once again repeatedly how quick we are to judge. But the farmer was different. The farmer left room. He had a posture of curiosity. He was open to the possibility that there could be more than he was seeing at that one given moment. And all of that, I think, really mirrors this great story from Luke chapter 19. The crowd in Jericho, they looked at Zacchaeus and they saw nothing more than a money-grubbing Roman corroborator. And yet, there was so much more. Right? Because despite the way that things may have looked, right? despite the way that they had judged everything, Zacchaeus was actually defying those judgments. He was giving half of all of his possessions to the poor. Luke chapter 19, verse 9 says, that Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. And Amazingly, as we see from Jesus' affirmation there, what the people were actually seeing and experiencing was a manifestation of the kingdom of God and its upside-down nature right there in their midst. Right? The kingdom where those who exalt themselves are humbled and those who humble themselves are exalted. The kingdom where the first will become last and the last will become first. The kingdom where the poor in spirit and the meek and the merciful are blessed. And the kingdom where a generous tax collector is not an oxymoron. And what a powerful reminder that is of how important it is for us to be curious as we journey with Jesus how important it is for us to wonder what is it that God might be up to? What might God want me to see about someone else or a circumstance or myself that transcends whatever I think about that right now? So may we be curious. Later on in this same chapter of Luke, Jesus would enter Jerusalem to begin what would be the final week of his life, leading up to his betrayal and arrest and crucifixion. And beyond the physical suffering that Jesus endured as he hung on the cross, he was also comprehensively mocked and humiliated. And all the different people who were on the scene as Jesus was suffering the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the the thieves that were on either side of Jesus, all of them were hurling insults at Jesus. They were all mocking him. And of course, what's underneath all of that mockery is judgment. Jesus was being judged by people as a criminal. He was being judged by people as an impotent king. He was being judged by people as powerless to save himself. And yet, there was so much more.